This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres, and today we're going to be talking about Chinese immigration to the United States with Dr. Madeline Shu, who is Associate Professor in the Department of History and also Director of the Center for Asian American Studies here at the University of Texas, where she works on research on migration, transnationalism, race and citizenship in the United States, and is currently working on a book tentatively titled Strategic Migrations, Immigration Selection, and How the Yellow Peril Became a model minority between 1872 and 1966. Welcome, Dr. Shu. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, so when and how did Chinese immigration to the United States begin? I know with American history, a lot of people associate that with the gold rush in California in the mid-19th century. Is that about the right time frame? Or The gold rush was the reason for a big increase in Chinese migration to the United States. Chinese will become much more visible, particularly on the West Coast after the mid-19th century, will be used extensively in as laborers on the railroad and also in West Coast agriculture. But Chinese start trickling into the United States really with the um, clipper trade uh, out of Boston. Some Chinese will also come to the United States as students brought in by missionaries. We know there were a few Chinese that showed up in uh, displays of exotic persons uh, put on by people such as P.T. Barnum. But it's really after uh, the gold rush that we have Chinese coming in visible in significant numbers. What social and economic challenges did Chinese immigrants face on their arrival? Were they legal immigrants? Did they come in illegally? What, and what kind of challenges did that present? When Chinese first started arriving to work in the United States, and if we think of the United States as a land of opportunity, we have to remember that this was true as well for Chinese. And so many Chinese looked to the West Coast uh, as a place where there were many employment opportunities. At this point in time, the United States had not yet started trying to restrict immigration. And so the United States really was a land of immigrants. And so Chinese come up until completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. It was, in fact, quicker to travel from places like Hong Kong to San Francisco. You could catch a ship and go across the Pacific Ocean. It would take several weeks. Then it was to travel from the east coast of the United States over to the west coast. And so when we think about pioneers and we think of people uh, helping to construct economies, Chinese were really critical on the west coast and particularly California. Uh, So we mostly associate them with the gold rush and the railroads, but they were also active in many, many industries, such as cigar manufacturing, boots and shoes, textiles. They were really critical in laying the agricultural foundations in California. Uh, They diked certain rivers. Um, They turned certain swamp lands into farmland. Uh, Chinese had a really critical role on the West Coast. Uh, But it was also California that starts feeling the strains of having what was regarded as an alien population. And as early as 1855... Californians concerned about the growing presence of Chinese uh, start wanting to pass laws to restrict the numbers of Chinese entering into the state. And um, so the California state legislature did pass laws, and these were struck down in court uh, because 
according to the Constitution, it's only the federal government that has the power to restrict immigration. And so California's uh, unhappiness over the growing numbers of Chinese and Chinese uh, and California will be home to the greatest numbers of Chinese for many decades to come. What is California's problem will have to become a national one if California is to resolve this issue. And this will happen over the course of the 1870s. Uh, There are a variety of reasons. In the 1870s, the United States is going through a severe economic contraction. Uh, Politics at the time mean that the Democrats and the Republicans are running nearly neck and neck in presidential elections, which means that for a swing state, such as California was at that time, their concerns and their issues become aggrandized. And across the last half of the 1870s, uh, both Democrats and Republicans jump onto this bandwagon of the anti-Chinese movement. And we have to bear this in mind because it reflects a significant shift in the direction of the United States. The Chinese exclusion law that will be passed in 1882 will be the first time that the United States enacts an enforced immigration restriction law. Uh, It sets the country on a course of distinguishing people on the basis of their immigration status and allotting differential rights. Um, Very considerable turn in a country that has considered itself democratic, uh, has had embedded in its constitution guarantees of equality for all to embark on this path. Uh, The Chinese exclusion law is notable also for the fact that it distinguishes Chinese as a race. And This has to do with all of the reasons why Chinese could be seen as such a threat, as such a problem, that you, in fact, would uh, enact this kind of immigration restriction. What kind of threat were they considered? Fundamentally economic threat. So unfair labor competition. Chinese were seen as undercutting the white working class. Um, They could live more cheaply. They could eat more cheaply, in part because they didn't know any better. Uh, They also didn't have their families in the United States so that they could live more cheaply. There was also a great fear of Chinese numbers. And the idea was that Chinese could overwhelm the West Coast of the United States because there were so many of them back in China just waiting to come across the ocean. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, which would have taken much longer if it had not been for Chinese workers, the Central Pacific Railroad, which was constructing the railroad from the West Coast eastward, relied on about 70 to 80 percent of its workforce were Chinese. Uh, But once that railroad was completed, uh, it reduced travel time from the east coast of the United States to the west coast to about three weeks, which facilitated Euro-Americans moving westward, but it also led to this fear that Chinese could also use that railroad and travel eastward. And so this idea of Chinese invasion, and you can look at some of the political cartoons from that time period, in fact, were being broadcast widely uh, in journals such as Harper's Weekly, which were widely read. So there was this idea of invasion, of competition. Uh, There also was this very powerful uh, 
conception of racial difference. And so we have to remember at this time period that Charles Darwin had published uh, his famous book. Uh, Many people's ideas about racial difference were affirmed scientifically, right, by what they understood of evolution and social Darwinism. And so ideas of racial difference, competition between the species, uh, the idea that some species evolve and survive, whereas others are meant to go extinct, uh, were in fact very real. And when you couch the sense of competition against Chinese who were seen as fundamentally racially different, uh, incapable of exercising citizenship on fully equal terms in an American republic, an American democracy, uh, also legally restricted from gaining citizenship by naturalization. In 1790, Congress had visited this issue and had decided that only, and I'm quoting here, free white persons could get citizenship by naturalization, uh, meant that legally uh, Chinese were believed not suitable uh, to become U.S. citizens and casting a vote. So all of these measures of differentiation then raise the question of whether or not Chinese should then be allowed to continue coming to the United States. And resoundingly, when Congress went to vote, the answer was no. And it was a matter of protecting the United States, but also conserving a particular idea of uh, the United States as a nation and also what kinds of people can be U.S. citizens. So is this where that notion of the the yellow peril that you reference yes. in your book title? Okay. Yes, the yellow from. peril is the fear of uh, Orientals and oh, of wow. being taken over. So what were the broader impacts of that Exclusion Act? Uh, I know that by the early 20th century, we had also begun to impose quotas on other groups. So did that all come out of this, or was it a subset, or...? So... Uh, In addition to the legal foundations and the ideological justifications for Chinese exclusion, you have the very serious problem, which we continue to grapple with today, of how you, in fact, uh, enforce border controls. And this is something we have still not worked out. So the U.S. faces this challenge of having these very long land borders with places like Canada and Mexico. And although you can uh, install uh, immigration officers in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland, all a Chinese person or anybody else whose entry into the United States is restricted has to do is land in either Canada and Mexico and walk across the Rio Grande as they did. Uh, And so the strategies for border control and border enforcement develop around this problem of how you actually carry out the Chinese exclusion laws. So certain uh, commonplace uh, tactics uh, emerge with Chinese. In 1892, uh, Congress passes another law uh, called the Geary Act, which requires that Chinese legally present in the United States have to carry around a certificate of residence. Okay, and this requirement was intended to cut down on the illegal, illicit border crossings uh, and uh, is the precursor to what we now consider the green card. You have to provide evidence that you have legally entered. This, of course, pertained only to Chinese. Uh, The 1892 Act also authorizes the use of deportation. 
So if you are found to be present in the United States illegally, uh, you can be sent away. And this was to deal with the reality that you can't just enact border control at the borders. The realization that, in fact, many people will successfully make their way into the United States, be living and working in the United States, and then what do you do about those uh, people? And the, the solution was to send them away. There are requirements for evidence. So not all Chinese were forbidden from entering if you were of certain select classes, such as students, diplomats, merchants, merchant family members you were legally allowed to enter the U.S., but you have to be able to document that you are of the correct status. And then there is a working out of how you actually prove you're a merchant or a diplomat or a student. Uh, the experience of trying to enact Chinese exclusion also shows us that uh, as um, specific as the laws may become and as uh, carefully as uh immigration officials may try to um, carry out their responsibilities, people with motivation and with drive to come into the United States, usually they're motivated by economic reasons, sometimes for reasons of political safety, other times for purposes of family reunification. People can become very uh, clever in figuring out ways of getting around the laws. And it also sounds like the issue of whether local law enforcement should be allowed to enforce federal immigration laws by checking papers and status is one that we've also been grappling with for, for quite a long time, based on what you just said. Another thing that we see getting worked out with the enactment of Chinese exclusion are issues of U.S. federal government sovereignty. What exactly are the powers of the federal government? And so it is determined by the courts that it is the federal government that holds the power to uh, enact border controls. And so uh, historically, there is long legal and also judicial precedent uh, that it should be the federal government that holds those powers. Uh, although, of course, local governments often run into problems of what do you do with um, certain populations. Uh, there is also this working out of whether the U.S. government has sovereign control to impose border restrictions against other countries or whether or not this should be worked out by a process of treaty negotiation. And this is clarified in the case of Chinese, the Chinese government. Um, and we have to remember here that when you have very discriminatory immigration laws. It's clearly a slap in the face of this other country. Um, and the Chinese government made efforts to negotiate through treaties and through uh, diplomatic contacts better conditions for Chinese to come to the United States. And pretty much the U.S. government sweeps this away and imposes its own uh, prerogatives uh, on Chinese mobility into North America. Uh, this becomes an accepted aspect of international relations, I'd say, by the turn of the 20th century. And I think governments around the world acknowledge that each should have the power to control its own borders, decide who can come in and out. At the same time, there's this balancing act of having to um, try not to offend those with whom you wish to be friends. Uh, and so we see this in many of the choices that Congress will go on to make in future immigration legislation, particularly in the 1924 Immigration Act, 
which imposes a system of differential quotas. And some countries get extremely large quotas that are never used up, particularly historical allies of the United States. Some countries get tiny token quotas, and some countries, such as Japan, uh, get none at all. So when was the, the Exclusion Act repealed? I'm assuming at some point that it was. And what caused the change in, in attitudes toward Chinese immigration that led to that? So we have the repeal of exclusion coming in 1943 in the throes of World War II. The exclusion law is being used by Japan to make the argument to China. And we actually know the Japanese were um, dropping leaflets and pamphlets onto Chinese territory, making the argument that China and Japan should be allied on a racial basis and that China should turn against its American ally because clearly Americans did not think much of Chinese as they had this Chinese exclusion law in place. Chinese were the only people identified by race uh, for immigration restriction um, into the United States. Under these kinds of pressures, and it was very political, uh, there were, across the 1930s, a sense of greater understanding and warmth towards Chinese. There were the novels of Pearl Buck. Uh, the movie version of The Good Earth came out and was extremely popular. Uh, Henry Luce, who was the publisher of Time Life magazines, was friends with uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his wife Song Mei-ling, who were the heads of China. Uh, so there was a lot of popular media representations uh, that depicted China's more positively. Uh, but in 1943, it really was about uh, the need to retain China as an ally. Uh, repeal was also possible because Congress, and in particular Representative Walter Judd, who had been a medical missionary in China, were able to figure out symbolic changes to immigration law. And what was worked out was that you could remove the stain of discrimination against Chinese, you could get rid of the Chinese exclusion laws, and place Chinese on the same immigration basis as everybody else. And so this is a gesture towards treating Chinese equitably, but still prevent large numbers of Chinese from entering the country. That is, you simply place China on the same quota basis, and Chinese had a quota of 105 per year, and you would accomplish that end, and you wouldn't have a flood of Chinese entering. That's that's a hundred and five, not a hundred and five thousand or a hundred and five. One hundred and five people. Okay. Hundred and five people per year. The main thing gained by Chinese in 1943 was that they were allowed the right to citizenship by naturalization, and the the first Asian group uh, to gain that right. Uh, so. The 1943 repeal of the exclusion laws was really a largely symbolic gesture. It was received with appreciation by the Chinese government for the gesture towards treating Chinese racially as equals, but it will be the harbinger for greater liberalizations to come as increasingly use of racial and national origins criteria become unacceptable particularly as the United States moves into a phase where it is attempting global leadership. You cannot simply shut out great chunks of the world, particularly Asian and the emerging African nations, uh, through your immigration laws. Producing, uh, in 1965, the much more equitable system that we have.
And are there any lasting legacies of, of the exclusion laws that we still have in our immigration policy? We see the legacies all around us. The focus of concern about illegal immigration has shifted from Chinese and other Asians to uh, Mexicans and Latin Americans. The sense of crisis around being invaded, of being taken over, um, now focuses on the great numbers that we fear will cross the southern border. But the strategies of deportation, of creating a caste of illegal aliens, um, what May Nye has termed impossible subjects, people who are present in the United States, but because of the fact of their illegal entry, are never permitted to normalize and become regular Americans. This is something that is very much on the table uh, today as we try to debate terms for immigration reform and whether or not a democracy can, in fact, sustain and should force a certain caste of people to remain with lesser rights. Uh, the use of the deportations also very much with us, uh, great anxieties about border control, um, differential access to citizenship, uh, use of documents. Um, some people have less rights to use the American court system. All of these things were part and parcel of um, Chinese exclusion, and they're still being used today. Wow. Well, thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Xu. Um, this has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.